alive. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 23. Luke, chapter number 23, and the first part of verse 33 is the text for the message. Luke, chapter 23, verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. A few weeks ago, we started a journey on the road to Calvary. We started in the upper room as the Lord met with his followers and As I pointed out, actually, that journey started way back before the foundation of the world even began. But we picked up the story there in the upper room, and now we see it concluding here today at the cross of Calvary. I I never feel more inadequate than I do when I preach about the cross, and for good reason. Because I know before I even begin that I will fail to do justice to this great subject. Words simply cannot explain all of the mysteries and all of the glories related to the suffering of Christ. I had the privilege of listening to B.R. Lakin and R.G. Lee and, and several others that we would consider the greatest orators of our day. And, uh, and, and I've listened to R.G. Lee as he expounded upon the cross. And, and yet, whenever all was said and done, the story still wasn't told. You see, as great as those men were, you know, they failed to complete the picture of all that's involved when we think about the glories of the cross. And so that's why I say I know that I'm going to fail even before I start. Whenever we consider our Lord's last day before His death, we see the suffering from the beginning to the end. The anticipatory suffering of Jesus. We were there with Him in the garden And there as he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, and as he poured out his soul unto death, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world is now, as he says, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. And we see him there anticipating all of this. As I said before, he lived with the shadow of the cross upon him. Every thorn must have reminded him that someday he would be crowned with thorns. Whenever he thought about the rough wood of the cross, it reminded him that he would be nailed to the cross. Whenever he drove a nail into wood, it reminded him someday the nails would be driven into his flesh. Every sacrifice that he watched the Jews bring reminded him that he had come to be that sacrifice 
the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. So he has lived all of this time anticipating this moment that we're talking about. And that was no small thing, you'll remember from the picture there in the garden. Whenever he is reflecting upon the fact that he is about for the first time to be separated from the Father, and he cries out, Father, let this cup pass from me, if it's possible. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And then we see there is the agony of Gethsemane itself. As he pours out his soul in prayer to the Father while the disciples are fast asleep. Then we moved along this road to the alleged trials. There were actually six of them. Three were of a uh, religious nature and three of a civil nature. And again and again we see him illegally dragged before one trial after another, falsely accused and condemned without any cause. And then we move from that to the actual suffering, and that's where we are today. Luke describes it as a hill called Calvary. Matthew says he went into a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull. And so when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he hung there suspended between heaven and earth for six hours. Six hours that can be divided into, into two parts. The first three in the daytime, in the light, and the last three in the dark. During those first three hours, the emphasis is all upon the physical suffering of Christ. And if we had time to read through all of the different records in the four Gospels, it's very easy to put together the picture. And I wish today that there's some way that we can just, you know, mentally go back in time and stand there as witnesses to the crucifixion and think about what transpired. They stripped Him of His garments, which were then divided between four soldiers. You know, regardless of whether you profess to be a Christian or not, there ought to be a certain level of dignity and respect for mankind. But let me tell you, that doesn't exist in a world without Christ. They stripped Him of His garments. And then it tells us that the soldiers cast lots for His seamless coat. Imagine that. Here they are gambling for a garment while he hangs on the cross. While the world's greatest event is taking place, they're thinking about nothing but pleasure and profit, gaining possessions. That's all they can think about. And by the way, somebody appeared to be a winner. But things are not always as they seem. I don't know what might have happened to that man that that supposedly won the seamless coat of our matchless Lord, but, but I'll guarantee you it wasn't a good thing. 
But he appeared to be a winner. Let me tell you, nobody's a winner without Jesus. So they've stripped him of his garments, they've gambled for his seamless coat, and the scoffers began to pass by. Now the Bible says they were wagging their heads and railing against him, just demonstrating how cold and callous people can be. And then the chief priest criticized Pilate's inscription. Pilate had, remember, he tried to cleanse his hands of the blood of Christ and had a public ceremony where he washes his hands and turns him over to the Jews for crucifixion. And he had put a plaque up on the cross saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And now the chief priests are requesting that it be changed in red. He said, I am King of the Jews. In other words, this is who he claimed to be. I suspect they were afraid somebody might look at that and really believe it. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, because, listen, Pilate got it right. He is King. And they're not satisfied with acknowledging Jesus as King. They want it to be said, He said that He is King of the Jews. In other words, this is their way of indicating that he is a liar. I wish we had time to look at the picture in more detail as it's described in Psalms 22. See, hangs upon the cross, all of the joints of his body are dislocated. That was typical of people that were crucified in this fashion. Think about that, all of the joints of his body being dislocated. The pain is so intense as he hangs there on the cross. There, there would have been a seesaw motion, and there, you know, doctors have looked at this picture, and based upon what they know of the practice of crucifixion in years gone by, they've tried to describe what it would be like. Hanging there on the cross, the pain in the hands and Naturally, the feet, and it would be a constant seesaw motion of one minute trying to pull with the arms to alleviate the pain in the feet, and the next minute shifting the weight back to to the feet and them feeling the full force of the nails and the pain. As he stiffens his legs and is he's heaving to, to try to get another breath of air, and all of a sudden his breathing becomes becomes labored. This was a just a slow, deliberate, cruel means of suffocation. That's exactly what it was. And the chest then begins to throb with pain. And we could go on and on and on reading the various reports that physicians have written in this regards. But let me tell you, we could never fully get the picture of the pain that he suffered. You know, so many times we previously talk about other people and how they feel. And, you know, they they have a physical problem, maybe one that you've had. And we say, yeah, I know how you feel. I, I've got the same, I've got the same thing. But, but regardless, you have no idea how they feel. 
took me a long time and some painful experiences to learn that I didn't know as much about other people as I thought I did. I mean, you don't know how anybody else feels. You say, oh, yeah, I had a root canal. I know, I know how it feels. No, you don't know how they feel. And I'm saying all of that to say this. When we think about the physical suffering of Jesus Christ, our mind cannot even begin to comprehend what He went through. You see, we can try to measure His suffering by what we suppose that others would have suffered. And we can look at it, you know, from the standpoint of the medical doctor and we can look at all of those scientific terms and we can just try to figure all of that out and still we don't have a clue. Because when we look at the physical suffering of Jesus, we are just getting part of the picture. Three long hours now he has suffered and finally, finally God says, you've seen enough and God pulls a canopy of darkness over the earth. If you've never studied the seven last words of Christ, you need to take some time and do that and think about all of the things He said hanging there on that cross. For three long hours they've walked by wagging their heads and mocking Him. And He has suffered physically. But during the next three hours, all of the emphasis is upon the spiritual, inward suffering of Jesus. Matthew 27, 45 says, And now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all of the land unto the ninth hour. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. I want you to understand that while we've been talking about the guilt of Pilate and the guilt of the Jews and all of those involved in crucifying Jesus, behind all of this is who? God Himself. the author of our salvation, God Himself, who before the foundation of the world foresaw our sin and prepared a means whereby we might be redeemed. It says, It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He, that is God, hath put Him to grief. And during that darkness for the first time in all of eternity, the fellowship between the Father and the Son is broken. And in a sense, you could say Jesus is the only person who ever put His trust in the Father, only to have the Father turn His back on Him. And the reason? Isaiah 53, 10, same verse. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. You you see, Jesus suffered at the hands of the Father and he is suffering inwardly. Notice that he shall see the travail of his soul. Not, Not his body, but his soul. That inward life. And the very next verse says in verse 11, 
and he shall be satisfied. You see, that tells us that his sacrifice not only was planned by God for man, but that his sacrifice is sufficient. All through the centuries, those Jews, time and time and time again, had brought their sacrifices to the temple. They had offered up the blood of those animals to God over and over and over again. But for the first time in all of eternity, God could look at a sacrifice and say, I'm satisfied! That's good enough! No more! And the price was the shed blood of His own dear Son. Therefore, He said, Will I divide Him a portion with the great? And He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He hath poured out of His soul unto death. And He was numbered with the transgressors, and He bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It's... No wonder the songwriter said, Love so amazing, so divine, divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me live from day to day with its shadows o'er me. No wonder Paul said, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom, he says, the world is crucified unto me. That is, I'm dead to the world and I unto the world. We've come to the end of the road to Calvary. And although although it is a horrible picture of suffering and death and agony and pain, It is the most glorious sight in all of the world. We think about the fact that the songwriter has tried to capture the likeness of the cross in the words of a song. The poet has tried to capture its power and its beauty, you know, in the words of a poem. We even set it to music and the finest skilled physicians take the very best instruments that money can buy and they, they play all of their instruments together trying to project some feeling about the cross. And when it's all said and done, it, there's just something that's still missing. We take crosses and we, we adorn the cross with silver and gold and precious jewels And then we adorn ourselves with the cross. We put the crosses on tops of buildings where there in many large cities you can see them all across the skyline, crosses rising up from the steeple of church buildings. And yet with all of our efforts, we're never able to really capture the beauty of the cross. That's why Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, that is, boast or brag about anything save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is a vindication of divine justice because sin was punished. It's a display of divine love because God gave His Son. It's the only means of removing guilt 
It's our one object of faith. It is our door to hope. It's the source of our rest. It is the creator of our enthusiasm. Were it not for the reality of the cross, I could just give you a boring lecture, scientifically correct perhaps, but as dead and lifeless as as a doorknob. Let me tell you, whenever we really get the message of the cross pressed home by the power of God's Spirit, God can take the most illiterate country preacher and use those stumbling words and empower them to accomplish things that nothing else on earth can possibly accomplish. He can use that message of the cross to deliver the drunkard from the bar room. He can use the message of the cross to put families back together again. You see, it can raise us up out of the ash heap of ruin and not only make us to be productive citizens in the country where we live, but to transform us into the, into the very likeness of, of something that is unearthly, that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And suddenly for the first time we see that we're able to forgive our enemies and we're able to love our neighbors and we're able to do things that ordinarily we could have never done on our own. All because of the difference that the cross of Jesus Christ makes. And as I said, this is the creator of our enthusiasm for our Christian service because It excites a spirit of appreciation within us because suddenly we realize we don't deserve anything and God gave everything. How can we not appreciate that? It develops dedication in our life because there's nothing else worth living for. It creates a sense of responsibility that if He gave all for me, I ought to give all to Him. That message ought to stir up our cold hearts. It ought to turn our attention away from all of our petty problems and cause us to set our affection on things above. There's an old, old song that probably most of you have never even heard that we used to sing many years ago saying, Are you living in the shadow of the cross? Oh, that we would live each day of our life in the shadow of the cross. I sat there at my desk before I came out here and just trying to think what it must be like to have stood there at the cross. And now as I look back on all of these years that have gone by and just standing in the shadow of the cross, it just almost seems like that that I could hear Jesus say, I am here because of you. It's your sin that I'm bearing. It is your curse that I'm suffering. It's your death that I'm paying. It's your death that I'm dying. It's your hell that I am enduring. It's your salvation that I am securing. It's your deepest need that I'm meeting. And the wonderful thing about it is, He did all of that not just for me, or not even just for you. He tasted death for every man, the Bible says. Considering 
the glory of the cross, we ought to receive it. And having received it, we ought to rejoice in it. And we ought to report it. We ought to get that message out to every man, woman, boy, and girl in this whole wide world. Because it's the only message that will save their soul. What about you? We've come to the end of the road to Calvary now. And we see the price that was paid. And hopefully you understand the offer that the Lord has made, that whosoever shall come unto me, shall in no, I will in no wise cast out. In other words, he's saying, you receive me, I receive you. Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? Have you accepted the payment he made for your sin debt? Have you received the forgiveness of sins that he offered? If not, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And to receive him will be the greatest joy of your life. And having received him, I ask you, are you serving him? Are, are you faithfully engaged in trying to report the gospel message to the world around you? I, I hope that nobody thinks that this journey that we've taken is is just a history lesson. That now we know all of the things that happened between the upper room and that old rugged cross on Calvary. Now, you know, maybe we can in, even rehearse it in our mind and tell others. But that's all history. Until we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then it, it, it becomes the very blood that flows through our veins. It becomes the very life and the very joy of our being. Have you received him? If not, I beg you to do so right here, right now, this morning, before you leave. Let's stand together, Father. I pray this morning that you will bless in spite of my feeble efforts, in spite of my bumbling efforts and mistakes. Just God, this morning, use your word, the purity of the gospel. Use that and plunge it into our hearts today. Lord, for those that have been saved, help us to be revived at the very thought of the cross. Heavenly Father, for those that are lost, dear God, don't let, them, don't let them leave here today without first having trusted Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And if they do, I pray that the Spirit of God will follow them home and convict them and make them miserable take their sleep from them and help them to realize what a horrible position they're in and then draw them to Calvary that they can experience your saving grace for we beg it in Jesus' dear name.